0: Amen. Amen. So uh, throughout the last few weeks, we have been engaged in a sermon series called Rhythm of Faith, where we've looked at uh, a category of songs that's unique to the American tradition called the spirituals. And uh, the songs that we've been looking at were songs written by uh, American Christians who were enslaved. Most of the songs, as best we can tell, were written in the 1800s although many of them weren't uh, recorded or even written down into the late 1800s or early 1900s. And so we're not always sure who wrote the song, uh, but we do generally know who popularized it. And there's a song that we're going to look at today called, There Is a Balm in Gilead. And the song uh, connects to, uh, maybe for some of us, an obscure passage In the book of Jeremiah, I know that most of you have the uh, book of Jeremiah memorized, and so this isn't going to be new for you, but maybe just as by means of refresher, Jeremiah was a prophet uh, in a place called Judah. It was the people of God, and he was noticing and weeping for his people. He noticed that not only were the poor and the marginalized and the foreigner being oppressed and taken advantage of, He also noticed that the majority of people, regardless of status, were turning their backs on God and going their own way, even giving their hearts over to worshiping sex, money, and power as they understood these things to be embodied in the gods that they made and served. And so Jeremiah is weeping on behalf of his people as he sees this oppression, this rebellion, and this decay, and he's asking this question, can God heal us? Gilead is a place that would have been known to Jeremiah as a place, uh, a region where you could go and there would be uh, either tree or plant where uh, within the tree or plant you could take the liquid out and it would serve as a balm on your wounds. And so the question, is there a balm in Gilead, is this working idea that Jeremiah knows and his hearers know that it's one of the, uh, the soothing medicines that they could obtain if they were to go to Gilead and get the balm. And so it's, he uses that as a rhetorical device to speak to his deep questions. And so I'm going to read the text. I'm going to leave you with a final question, and then we're going to hear the song. This is Jeremiah 8, verse 18 and on. My joy has flown away. Grief has settled on me, and my heart is sick. Listen, the cry of my dear people from a faraway land. Is the Lord no longer in Zion, her king no longer within her? Why have they angered me with carved images with their worthless foreign idols? Harvest has passed and summer has ended, but we have not been saved. I am broken by the brokenness of my dear people. I mourn and horror has taken over me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? So why has the healing of the people who are dear to me not come about? Jeremiah longs for a healing, for a balm. And this question, is there a balm in Gilead, is answered in the song that you are about to hear, written by an American Christian who was enslaved who connected with Jeremiah's questions and then points us to an answer. As you hear these words, would you allow them to speak to you in this moment?
1: There in Gilead to make the world Oh, if you cannot preach like Peter, if you cannot preach like Paul, You can say he died for us all, there is a bond in killing. To make the wounded whole, there, there is a bomb Yeah. <laughs>
0: juxtaposition between the question of Jeremiah and the answer of the song. Is there a balm in Gilead? Is there a physician there? And the answer from the song, there is. Howard Thurman, who was a minister, civil rights activist in America, says this in his book called Deep River, in which he reflects upon as select a uh, few certain spirituals, reflecting on the song, there is a balm in Gilead. He says this, and I think he puts it beautifully. That as you read the words of Jeremiah, you hear the words of a wounded man crying out: "Is there no balm in Gilead? Is no physician there?" It is not a question of fact that he is raising. It is not a question directed to any particular person for an answer. It is not addressed either to God or to Israel, but rather it is a question raised by Jeremiah's entire life. He is searching his own soul. He is stripped to the literal substance of himself and is turning back on himself for an answer. Jeremiah is saying, actually, there must be a balm in Gilead. It cannot be that there is no balm there. The relentless winnowing of his own bitter experience has laid bare his soul to the end that he is brought face to face with the very ground and core of his own faith. The slave, the author of the song, caught the mood of this spiritual dilemma and with it did an amazing thing. He straightened the question mark in Jeremiah's sentence. Into an exclamation point. There is a balm in Gilead. And here we find a note of hopeful and certain triumph. Last week, uh, Pastor Nicholas Mwangi, who serves as one of the elders here at Desert Springs, uh, engaged in the scriptures and brought us along. And during his sermon, we discovered that Jesus is acquainted with our grief. He's acquainted with our suffering. He knows firsthand and experientially what it's like to suffer and to experience pain as a human. But today, we're going to ask the question, is he able to bring healing? Is he able to make the wounded whole? Is he able to serve as our balm? We're gonna take a look at a portion of scripture where Jesus, in Luke chapter four, Jesus engages and delivers, at least in Luke, his first sermon. He walks into a synagogue and he's asked to participate in the goings-on. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna to read to you Uh, A little bit of the account from Luke chapter four, and then we're going to look at a handful of things uh, that will help us answer the question, is he able to serve and to be our balm? There is a balm in Gilead. So Luke chapter four, check this out. Speaking of Jesus, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, dropped the mic. That might be a a little addition and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed upon him. He began by saying to them, today as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. And everyone gasped. And you didn't gasp. I'm going to show you why we're going to gasp. Okay, let me go back to the beginning and let's take this one step at a time. So uh, Jesus comes to Nazareth, which was his hometown. Okay, have you guys ever gone back home? Y'all know that experience? Isn't everything smaller? and smells different. Have you ever had that experience where you go back home, and then you run into people that you forgot that you didn't like? <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about? That, that actually happens to Jesus here in Luke chapter 4. So Jesus is, he, he's, he's going back home. He you know, drives past his high school and his junior high, and he waves to the owner of the market that he first had his store. Again, I'm making that up. But he goes back home. And as he goes home, he participates. And the text says, notice the text says, uh, Uh, He was back in Nazareth where he had been, as usual, he entered the synagogue. So do you think that the author is telling us of a common practice of Jesus? Yeah, so one of the things we see about Jesus is he frequently participated in the synagogue. Now, I know that most uh, many of us may not be familiar with Jewish tradition or rhythms of faith, and that's totally fine, uh, but basically, if you just think about uh, synagogue, this would have been similar to it. It's not the same. There's a lot of really interesting distinctions and nuances, but it's kind of like a participating in a church gathering, and there would be singing, there would be the reading of God's word, there would be prayer, and so Jesus rolls into the synagogue, which is kind of like the meeting house, Uh, of the people of Nazareth, and I'll check this out. Uh, He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So Jesus seems to be taking on some boss status. Y'all with me so far? I mean, like just imagine if like eight people walked out on the stage all mic'd up We'd be looking at each other like, wait, who's doing the thing, right? So Jesus, Jesus stands up to do the sermon. You guys see that? Okay, so he stands up to read, and then somebody, and I, this is crazy. This, this sounds like choose your own uh, direction, choose your own adventure sermon. Jesus doesn't have the text in his pocket. He walks, or he stands up to preach, and then they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. Now, I don't know if he knew or not that he was going to be preaching on Isaiah, but that's crazy, As a preacher, could you imagine being told, hey, uh, uh, tomorrow on Saturday, we we just need for you to exhort, uh, uh, to encourage the congregation from the text? Well, which text? You'll find out tomorrow. (laughs) So, the scroll of the prophet who? Isaiah. Now, I just want to add a little clarification here. Earlier, I read from Jeremiah chapter eight. Jesus is gonna read from Isaiah. I think it's 61 or 62. I've got it, yeah, 61 and Leviticus 25. Uh, these are two, So Isaiah and Jeremiah are two different uh, individuals, but they both have the same job. They're both what's called prophets. And prophet, to prophesy, to be a prophet is someone, it's not so much like telling the future, it's speaking God's truth to a people. It's speaking truth. That's the, that language of uh, the prophet. And so Isaiah was a person, so was Jeremiah. They were people who were speaking God's truth, Primarily to a rebellious people. And so he reads from this, he opens the scroll of Isaiah that was given to him, unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it is written. Now, he's scanning the document and he comes. Jesus seems to be intentionally picking what he's going to read for, at least in Luke's gospel, his first sermon. You guys see this? This is like the inaugural sermon of Jesus, or at least the inaugural public exhortation of the word from Jesus that we have recorded in the gospel of Luke. Jesus could have picked any part of Isaiah. This is what he picks. The spirit of the Lord is on me. TV time out. Earlier in Luke chapter four, uh, you see that the spirit of the Lord does, and and I know this is a little bit weird and I'd love to talk to you more about it. I'm not gonna answer it right now why it's weird or how to resolve it. But the spirit of God drives Jesus into the desert where he's tested for 40 days and 40 nights. And he comes into direct uh, uh, contact and conflict with uh, evil embodied or the Satan, the accuser, and he's tempted there with all sorts of uh, uh, different things like uh, money and power and safety and security, and Jesus says, no, I'm going to do what the Father has called me to do, and so you see in Luke chapter four, the Spirit is radically uh, connected to and at work in Jesus, and so the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach what, you tell me? Preach good news. Uh, now, another way to say good news is just gospel. Do you know what the gospel? Do you know what the word gospel means? You're never going to guess. It means good news. That's it. It's not like a magic word. It just means good news. And it would be completely feasible. In fact, this happened all the time in Jesus' day that a person would roll into town and and say, "Good news, everyone! Uh, there's a new king born today. Good news, everyone! Our military generals uh, conquered over our enemies. They were gospelers, right? Gospeling is just Giving good news. And so it says, Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to whom? The poor. Now, for us, we generally, I think as Westerners, for those of us that are Westerners, at least living in the Western world, we, we generally think about being poor as having an absence, uh, uh, there's an absence of resources, right? There's not enough food on the table, there's not enough money to make ends meet, but this idea of the poor, especially in Jesus' day, his original hearers would have heard that phrase and seen a larger grouping of people, namely of people who were disenfranchised, of people who had no voice, the people who were marginalized. Now, generally, they also had an absence of resources because they were also marginalized, didn't have a voice, and experienced poverty. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say, too, is Jesus is speaking in Nazareth, which is under the occupation of Rome. And so the people who are living in Nazareth, the people that he's speaking to, in fact, the people that Jesus primarily preaches to are people who are experiencing firsthand the systemic oppression of a people by a violent dictatorial empire. Uh, uh, For the Western history buffs in the room, have you guys ever heard of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome? It was this extended period of time where there was peace in Rome. Do you know how Rome kept the peace? By doing violence to anyone who would question them. In fact, if you were uh, if you were an enemy and you had been conquered over, it's likely that you and your children were sold into slavery, uh, if not killed. You were a bit pillaged. If if you were um, if you were under the Roman rule and you were not a Roman citizen, you had very few rights. At any point in time, they could do violence to you, and often did. Over taxation, uh, the, the taking uh, of resources. They were a martyr. for many people in Jesus' day. That would have been in this crowd. They would have known firsthand what it means to experience the systemic oppression by evil, dictatorial, and violent regime. And generally, they would have understood what it meant to be poor. Now, the reason that I'm teasing this out is look what else Jesus says. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, and to pro- uh, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So let's take a look at those uh, uh, three things. Number one, he, he is... Anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And so Jesus here is saying, I'm not just here to call the elites to follow me. I'm not just here to look for those who have their life together. I am here to proclaim good news to all, including the marginalized, the oppressed, the poor. Now, if a town caller would have come into your town and said, good news, everyone, Rome just conquered another enemy, who would that have been good news for, the poor or the elite? Like the poor, are they still poor after the good news? But the elite, they actually get more resources by and large. And so when the good news was generally proclaimed in a place like Nazareth, it would have been good news just for the people who benefit from Rome's advancement. But here Jesus comes in and he proclaims good news to whom? The poor, the marginalized. The outcast. Two. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. This is speaking about this release to the captives. It's speaking about people who were taken prisoner in maybe military expansion, maybe they were wrongfully accused and put behind bars. And when you are behind bars, what's the one thing you want? Release. Huh? Yeah? Okay. So he proclaims release to the captives, and then it goes even further. Recovery of sight to the blind. Now notice that we're going from uh, uh, economic and political power, uh, the absence of political power, the absence of economic stability. Now we're talking about physical ailments, right? Jesus has come to proclaim recovery of what? Yes. Sight to the blind. I have a handful of people in my life who are blind, And you know what they would like to do? They would like a miracle. They would like their sight restored. Recovery of sight to the blind. To set free the whom? The oppressed, this is more of a general category of people who, just, who are living under evil empire, who are living under the oppressive regime of the powerful and the elite. And then I love this, the fifth thing. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now this, for some of us, may be a little bit weird, and I'm gonna try to hit it in just like a minute or less. At this point, Jesus deviates a little bit from the Isaiah scroll and brings in Leviticus 25. I know that that's your favorite verse, Leviticus 25, one and on, right? Like you've got it on your coffee mug. So again, this will just be by way of reminder. In Leviticus, you have this, this really interesting command by God to his people, Israel, where he says, after so many years, there's going to be the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee means this. That if you were down and out, if you had experienced uh, oppression or poverty or famine or for uh, because you made big mistakes and miscalculations, you had to sell your land to someone else. You had to sell your family's land to someone else. On the year of Jubilee, whoever had bought that land would give it back. If you were so down and out, so oppressed, maybe you made some bad decisions in life and maybe you just, you just had economics that maybe there was a famine. For whatever reason, if you had to uh, sell yourself into slavery in order to make ends meet, the year of Jubilee, whoever bought you would release you and you would find freedom. The year of Jubilee... If you, because of whatever reason, maybe it was your own decisions, maybe it was a famine, maybe just—maybe there was a warring party that came in, and you had to borrow money from someone, on the year of Jubilee, whoever you borrowed money for, from would cancel the debt. It was referred to as the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you're an oppressed person, if you're a person who has had to give up your resources, if you're the person who has not experienced healing, if you're a person who has experienced deep brokenness, are you longing for the year of the Lord's favor? Here's the interesting thing. We don't have any record of the year of Jubilee actually being practiced. And so here is Jesus. Now, this is where we're gonna guess. Now, TV timeout. Uh, Pastor Caleb has mentioned economics, systemic oppression, poverty. What else have I mentioned? Uh, like political hot buttons. And I don't know if you guys have noticed. Uh, conversations about politics in this particular climate, are uh, dumpster fire. <laughs> you guys notice that? Uh, it's, it seems to be like an opportunity for people just to express their hatred towards each other, disappointment. I mean, it's gossip give themselves over to gossip and slander. I mean, come on, we don't need that. Uh, so here's what, as a church family, I, I hope you know this, and if you're newer to Desert Springs, I, I, I really want you to hear this. Uh, you, you generally don't talk about politics in polite company, and we're not polite company. We're a church family of a bunch of different types of people from all different types of backgrounds, bound together by nothing more than the love of and grace of God made known to us through Jesus Christ, which means we talk about issues that matter to people. Whatever we're talking about at the kitchen table, Jesus matters there too. And so our role as leaders, my, one of my roles as a leader, is to best equip you to have those kitchen table conversations in a way that it's honoring to the Lord, and in, uh, uh, in engaging in politics in a way that's honoring to the Lord. So we have a class coming up Wednesday night. It's on Zoom, so it'll be all digital. That way, if you say something I don't like, I can mute you. <laughs> <Amen>. <laughs> yeah, there's one thing, uh, there's a lot of stuff I didn't like about last year, but man, that mute button. That's, uh, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, but we're going to have a five-week Bible study uh, looking at the scriptures and talking, kind of working out how that might impact not only how we think about certain political issues, but primarily how we engage in it, uh, because our character and integrity are made known to our community in that space and in that arena. So I'd love to have you join me. You can check it out on our website. Just go to dsbc.church, and up on the events tab, just sign up. It's Political Disciple. Starts this Wednesday. I'd love to have you there. Uh, Okay, so this is interesting. Jesus proclaims the year of the Lord's favor, that year of Jubilee, and then notice what he does next. And are you guys ready to gasp? He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, dropped his mic, and sat down. And the eyes, oh, not yet, sorry. Although dropping a mic would make the tech booth gasp. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Hold on. Then uh, he began by saying to them, Today, in your hearing, or as the words hit your ears, the scripture has been what fulfilled. What Jesus is say- what Jesus is saying is that thing that has been talked about for millennia. That year of jubilee. This idea of uh, 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 good news to the poor, freedom for the captive, release for the oppressed. It's fulfilled not in Rome being taken over not in a nation state being formed, is fulfilled where? In me. Jeremiah asks the question, is there a balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? And the slave that authored the song gives us the answer that Jesus himself gives us in Luke chapter four. There is a balm, and there is one who can heal the sin-sick soul. And there is one who will make the wounded whole. Two things. One, there can be this tendency in, 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 I don't know if it's a Southwestern thing, if it's a Western American thing, I don't know what it is, but there's something I see people trying to do. They'll say things that they'll hear this sermon of Jesus and say, well, is it actual poor or like spiritually poor? Is it actually oppressed or is it like a metaphor? Is it actually captive or just like spiritually captive? And I would just wanna, I wanna, as as, as pastorally as I can, and to my best understanding of the gospels in particular, I don't think Jesus ever wants us to ask that question because I don't think he sees a fundamental difference. And the reason why is he seems to talk like this a bunch and then he seems to do it a bunch. And then he commands his church to do the things. Here's what I mean. There can be a tendency to simply hear Jesus' message here in Luke chapter 4 and say, oh, that's just talking about charity and creating nonprofits and that kind of thing. I think Christians are supposed to be just and charitable and create nonprofits and engage in actually feeding the poor and proclaiming the good news that he feeds the spiritual poor. And he seems to tether them so tightly that I just, I, I okay, let's do this. Um, it, have you guys ever heard of the, um, the idea that the church is called the body of Christ? I think that's more than just uh, like a pretty picture. The church is the, is the physical way, right now at least, that Jesus is manifest through the power of his spirit in the world. He calls his body to be at work. And when we, as a bunch of Uh, People who have been healed from sin, sick souls, when we turn from sin and we turn to Jesus, Jesus says that his spirit dwells within us, that we are born again. Y'all ever heard that? We're born again to a living and new hope. And then Jesus says stuff like this follow me, which means do what I do, which means that wherever there is a local body of Christ following Jesus, is that good news for the poor because it puts food on the table? Yes, it is. It is is physically good news because as Jesus followers, we look at the needs in the world and just like Jesus, we strive to meet the needs that are in front of us. I mean, the law of Christ is love your neighbor as yourself. And so here in North Phoenix, I'll give you one example. I could give you 1,000, but I'm just going to give you one. Uh, there's a person I met a couple few years ago. He's now a good friend of mine. He is into real estate, and he's brilliant, and he's really smart with math, and uh, really good with money and investments and all this type of stuff. And, and he, uh, he and I started a conversation a couple few years ago. I don't know, 2020 feels like 17 years. so I feel like it was three years ago, maybe. And he was asking the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? I think, I think I might want to do that. In the process of his exploration of Jesus, he found himself loving Jesus and following Jesus. He gave his life to Jesus. And then not so long ago, he came to uh, some folks in our church family, and, and one of the things he had shared with me was, you know, Jesus gave his entire self for me. And he calls me to follow him and to live like him. I think that means that I'm supposed to be generous to other people. And so he actually, uh, there was a person who's connected to our church family, a single mom, who through a variety of pretty painful circumstances could not get into a, a safe home. And so he began coaching and providing resources and actually created a way financially for her to get into her own home where she's helping to pay the mortgage, she's helping to own because he believes that you know if she owns the home, she'll get equity, and then that will help her daughter, and then they'll accumulate wealth, and then they'll be able to bless other people. Is his transformed life physically good news to the poor? Do you see it? Okay. It's also good news for the sin sick soul. You see, it's not just the elite that need to repent and believe in the gospel. One of the things that Jesus does is he gives dignity to the poor poor and marginalized by calling them to repent. He treats them as moral agents with agency. And he calls everyone, regardless of where they've been and where they're going, to turn from their sin and to follow him. Jesus gives his life for you and for me to heal the sin-sick soul. Gardner Taylor uh, was a minister in the early 1900s. He was known as the dean of uh, American preaching. If you want to uh, experience good preaching, read Gardner Taylor's sermons. If you pay me $100, I will read them out loud to you. They are really good. Gardner Taylor served as a Baptist minister in Brooklyn, and he did a sermon way better than mine on the balm In Gilead. And watch what he says. We know at levels deeper than reason. We know at levels deeper than reason that by his wounds we are healed. In his abandonment, the way is open for us to be one forever to God. Christ heals our souls disease. And he is our balm in Gilead. Taylor goes on. This is so masterful. I remember as I was reading it, I just, you know that crying but not yet crying feeling you get? I was doing that as I was reading it. Do you remember where the balm comes from? It was in Gilead, but it was specifically from a tree or plant. Do you know how you get the liquid or the balm out of the tree? You take a blade and you cut it, or you pierce it. One of the things that Gardner Taylor notices is that Jesus is the balm of Gilead, and the balm spills out from his side. That on the cross, you see him lifted up on a tree, pierced for our transgressions, as the nails went through his hands and feet, and as you see his side pierced, The scripture says the blood and water flowed. Taylor... Looks at that and sees the balm coming out. The balm that heals the sin sick soul. One of the ways that we remember this reality is in the taking of communion or Lord's table or Eucharist, depending on your tradition. And in the taking of communion, we take bread and we take juice or wine. I'm going to ask that you would grab the elements that are available in the back of the seat in front of you. For those of you that are watching or joining us online, uh, if you have the elements around you, maybe some bread or crackers, juice, uh, water even, just whatever you would have available to you to represent the body and blood of Jesus. I would ask that you would just take a moment and open pull out the bread, and then even to prepare by opening the juice and hold on to the elements just for a moment in his sermon jesus proclaimed good news not just to those without material possession but to all for all of us are spiritually poor held captive and oppressed Jesus gave his life for you and for me. That anyone who would turn from themselves, turn from their sin and turn to Jesus to repent and believe in Jesus, anyone, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter where they've been or where they are going, anyone who turns to Jesus receives life and life abundant. To put it another way, Anyone who wants Jesus gets Jesus. He loves you so much. He is nearer to you than you are to yourself. And He is the one who can truly heal the sin sick soul. For those of you who are still trying to figure out who Jesus is, I would encourage you to reflect even in this moment, to spend these next few moments reflecting on the message that you've heard. And just as Jesus proclaimed, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing and he expected a response so too Jesus is calling you to respond and for those of us who follow after Jesus who have repented and believed in the gospel let us in this moment reflect upon and remember his broken body and his shed blood that he is the true balm of Gilead on the night that Jesus was betrayed he took bread and he broke it giving it to his disciples he said this is my body broken for you Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take and eat? And at that same meal, he took a cup. And he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take and drink? Would you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we love you and we know that you profoundly love us, that you are the great healer, the great physician, and that you are the only one who can make the wounded whole, the only one who can save the sin-sick soul. And so Jesus, in this moment, as we remember your body broken for us, your blood shed for us, In a space of reverence and reflection, we give you thanks. Would you continue to shape us into a people who live in light of this truth? Jesus, we ask these things knowing that you love us and you're powerful to bring them about. So we entrust ourselves to you. Amen. As we sing the words,